Today on The Black Goat, when and how should you judge a piece of research based on who did it, and a letter about what to do when your work fails to replicate. Hi, everybody, and welcome to The Black Goat. My name is Sanjay Srivastava, and I'm here with Samin Vizier and Alexa Tullett. Uh... Hello, everybody. Um, we're, Hi, I'm, I'm actually in my house. Uh, I usually record in my office, uh, and so just I've I've given fair warning that there's like going to be background noises. My my child is watching football in the next room, so if you hear cheering during the podcast, uh, that you'll know why. Who's he cheering? Yeah, for? I feel like we should tell people that we're so dedicated to the podcast that we're recording on a Saturday. <laughs> I know we never do this. This is kind of <laughs> fun. <laughs> <laughs> I, it's it feels much more relaxed i'm actually i'm still in my pajamas um and uh uh yeah we're going Sanjay, it's to... like 5 p.m you've been in your pajamas all day <laughs> <laughs> that is not true we're we're usually usually we often record in the morning during the week and so it's like i have a full day and, and today it's like i'm in my pajamas after we're done we're gonna go pick up our christmas tree and then you know it's just a very chill day yeah so I might be looser than usual. You guys, you guys have whiskey to loosen. I'm up. wearing blue pajamas. stretch pants. Nice. <laughs> nice. <laughs> For listeners at home, <laughs> Alexa just showed us her blue stretch pants. <laughs> we should also maybe uh, say it specifically. It's Saturday, December second, and I don't know. I think it's not that chill of a day because the Senate just passed the tax bill, and Michael Flynn just pled guilty, and like the world is basically burning down. Yeah, That's very well, this, is, this is like a, this. This has been an ongoing issue. I feel like with the podcast because we're not a current current events podcast. We often record like a week or two before, and I always want to talk about what's going on in the world. And we record, but I kind of maybe we should just talk about it because I, you know, it there's stuff going on. Well, so I I had this is kind of not just a like Saturday December second issue. Um, I was talking with a grad student the other day. And he was asking me, he's, he's like, you were in grad school during 9-11, right? And I was like, yeah. And he was like, how did you deal with trying to get your work done and, and trying to do things when all this shit is going down? And it was interesting because I, I kind of, you know, as, as I was thinking about it, I was like, that, that was so different because it was a collective event. Everyone was kind of on the same page immediately afterwards and and it was a discrete point in time and things obviously there was all kinds of shit that happened for years afterwards as a result of that but it it wasn't it was a sort of 9-11 itself was this discrete point in time and there was this sort of collective process of response and return to normalcy and this has just felt for me like this past year has been just like a steady stream of and not just sort of generally things that my politics make me care about or whatever but like specific things related to the work that I do things related to funding for science things I mean the the thing that was in the bill and lord knows by the time people are listening to this where this will have gone or if people will even remember like through a week and a half of hot steaming garbage in the news but right now one of the big questions that's up in the air is whether there will be a giant tax on graduate students' tuition waivers. And if that ends up going through, a lot of graduate students are worried about their careers. A lot of faculty are worried about, like, are 
are we going to be able to continue doing graduate training to anybody other than rich people um, because of what's going on? And, and so it's like the stuff in the world is really, I think, messing with people's heads right now. Yeah. I don't know, is it messing with your guys' heads? Yeah, I find it really hard to concentrate. And yeah, for over a year. It's and I was I started grad school the week a week or two before nine eleven happened. So I guess I was also in grad school then and it feels ironically, this feels like an existential threat, whereas that didn't. Like I didn't after nine eleven, I didn't think what if the US never what if it like becomes unrecognizable? It's no longer the same country I'm used to or like the fundamental values are changed. Even though that wouldn't have been a crazy thing to worry about in the face of a terrorist attack, but I didn't worry about it that much. I didn't think I didn't think there was a chance that the terrorists would win and we would give up our freedoms or whatever. Um, but I'm more worried about fundamental values and freedoms disappearing now than I was then by far. And it's do really you think hard. That's a reflection of the difference of the events or do you think it's a reflection of the difference in you as a like politically aware person? I think, I think it's a difference in the events, but mm-hmm. you know, who knows? Yeah. I mean, this feels, yeah, I don't know. It, yeah, if it, it, I think it's worse when it's coming from the inside. I think it's worse when you feel like the, the people that are trying to take away basic rights from, you know, people around you are like other voters in your country that, I don't know, it's just, yeah. Mm-hmm. Do your grad students tell you that they think about this stuff? Do you talk to them about it? We don't talk about it that much. We've We've talked about it a few times over the last year. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, yeah I, again, sometimes I, there's more directly relevant stuff. I mean, in California, all the DACA stuff is really relevant. Um, there's a lot mm-hmm. of immigrants. Uh, there's a lot of women. <laughs> there's a lot of, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I think, I mean, my, I, I talk with my graduate students from time to time about what's going on in the world, like politics specifically. I, I try to be a little careful at lab meetings because, you know, I I don't know where everybody stands on everything. It, I feel like it's easier, you know, in a one-on-one conversation. Um, but yeah, this was a, a grad student that brought this up and we, we just had a rally on campus. I think there were rallies at a lot of campuses across the country about the grad student tax. Mm-hmm. And... Yeah, like I, you know, I was thinking through like that thing specifically. What what would happen if that went through, and if because I don't, I haven't heard anything from universities about them having like a backup plan, right? Mm-hmm. And and there's a lot of discussion like, oh, could they just make tuition zero? But that that would be really disruptive because then they wouldn't they'd, they'd be cutting off a lot of revenue from grants, et cetera. And and you know, if if this just went through as described, it's like. Yeah, my graduate students who are close to graduating, we would just schedule their dissertation defense as soon as, you know, as soon as the university would let us get them their degree. And then my earlier graduate students, they'd probably, I mean, I don't know what each one of them would do, but I think a lot of them would just have to drop out of graduate school because they couldn't afford to be doing it. And and I would feel really weird, like, asking people to take on debt to be graduate students. Yeah. At least for a PhD in psychology, I feel like that and and the the inequalities that would result from like who can and can't afford to do that. We already aren't a diverse enough field in a lot of ways. That would just be horrible. Yeah, I feel like I mean, I have a lot of friends who so I don't have friends who are graduate students 
in psychology really like unless you know um, I mean I have a certain kind of friendship with my own graduate students but um, but I have friends who are graduate students in other programs and it's pretty like it's pretty clear that right now they're already struggling just to like barely make ends meet so I know like multiple people who are who use food stamps and like people who like you know they basically like get they run out of money by the end of the month and and things like that and so like it's very clear to me how they they are like they can just make it work right now so I mean this kind of stuff would be a huge disaster for I I don't think they would be able to do it I have a hard time figuring out how to think about this in the context of like, well, like the child health insurance program is defunded. The Affordable Care Act is getting decimated. So like people are going to be in poverty and lacking health care and kids are going to be dying. And and I care a lot about grad students, too. And I have an extra responsibility to care about it because those are the people I employ and work with and so on. Mm -hmm. And I just can't my head keeps spinning that I'm like, oh, yeah, the grad students. But oh, wait, what about all the kids in poverty? And what about people who won't have health insurance who are going to literally die because they can't afford dialysis or whatever? And I just yeah, I, I don't know how to avoid that kind of what aboutism on yourself like where you're just like spinning right. in circles right. and like mm-hmm. yeah i i i think i i feel less discomfort with that i in the sense that i i, I try to remain aware of the broad, these broader consequences and yeah try to try to guard against saying well like this other things worse so you shouldn't care about the thing you care mm-hmm. about um, I, I think it's both possible to care about something that's not the worst thing and to maintain a sense of perspective about where it fits in. And yeah, for me in part, because this is a domain, this is the domain where I do my work. Right. And so, you know, I mean, cause you could, you could make that argument almost any time. No, about I know, anything. Like I know. Why, why be a professor and not go volunteer yeah. or work at a nonprofit? No, I know, or, I know it's you know, irrational. Yeah. I just can't help it. Like when I tweet about no, the yeah. grad student tax thing, I'm like, I should be tweeting about like the child health insurance program or the Affordable Care Act or all these but other things. But think about the power of, like, your sympathy, right? So you have you have a specific audience for your sympathy when you tweet about the grad yeah. tax, right? And that, that sympathy benefits other people in a way that you might not have as direct a, an impact yeah. on people who would be affected by these other problems. Yeah, it makes sense. I just don't know how to shut it off. Yeah. yeah. I, I think it's also that the, the grads, again, I you know, I don't want to put this out of proportion, but I, I do think you know the there are some minimizing arguments about grad students that people who are attacking higher education would make, and I think it's important not to fall into yeah. that this actually is something that in the long run is important. Like, yeah. who are the scientists and educators in our country? What perspectives do they represent? Who has access to those professions? You know, when you look at like technology that's getting created out of Silicon Valley and a lot of those people have PhDs in computer science and engineering and things like that and the fact that the very limited set of people creating technology are creating technology that speaks to their limited worldview and concerns and they're not designing social media platforms to account for women's concerns and they're not designing them you know designing you know the the Ubers of the world to serve minority communities, and and they're not even working on certain issues. Like that is that that's that's like a diffuse second, third, fourth, fifth order effect, but it is a real one. So yeah. I, I think it's important not to. Oh, I mean, yeah. I agree with you. Like pe- people are going to die tomorrow because of policy, and it's hard not to just look at that and, and 
you know, and say that's what we need to focus on. Mm-hmm. But I, you know, I think we can care about all yeah. of it. Yeah, and just to be clear, I don't judge at all people who are really outspoken about the God texting. I don't think they should be, like, focusing on Chip or whatever. I just don't know how to stop those voices in my head. Yeah. If you could go back in time, um, Samin, would you become a politician? No. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I think that you would be a good politician. <laughs> Yesterday, one of my students told me that he would like he would be really, really scared to argue with me because like I'm so logical. Or whatever. It was like a huge compliment. But also I was like, I'm sorry that I'm intimidating. But anyway, that, that reminds me like I think that yeah. I like that aspect of it, which ironically, and I told him this, that when I was a kid, I hated debating things because everyone in my family was better at it than me. I mean, I was the youngest, but even just dispositionally I think they're just way sharper than I am and way better at like thinking on their feet and coming up with and that's all my family did and I was always just felt not good enough anyway so it's kind of funny that now I'm the one who always wants to debate things and whatever but Mm -hmm. I think if I could do it all over again and I I think I would probably become an academic anyway just more not out of principle just I love the lifestyle but I think the other profession that I think is so important and I'm jealous of and I is journalists. I just think so much of this to me comes back to like, if, if we protected our press better and like the integrity of the press and the reputation, like we had just more trust in the press. And I don't blame journalists for that, for not having people's trust. But if we as a society had protected that institution better, we wouldn't be here because so much of this is that there's no accountability because there's no way for facts to make it out there and people to understand what the bills they're, representatives are voting on actually say because they have names opposite of what they are there's all this spin there's this like false equivalence of like both sides well they're all politicians so they're all equally wrong or whatever and there's just no more sense of the bottom or like base of like facts and an entity that most of society trusts to represent the truth and like watchdog like i feel like we we no longer have a sense of having watchdogs i think we do still have watchdogs they're just they've lost their their role in our society or something. Mm-hmm. Sorry, that's really depressing. <laughs> yeah, is that like, is that our segue out of this topic of that's... the world is burning down? I don't, I feel like uh, we're not going to have a good segue out of yeah, this topic. We should yeah. probably just Let's decide when we're done. Yeah, move on. we can move on. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry, listeners. <laughs> <laughs> but, but like, uh, right. go, go thank your journalists. And if you have money, give money to journalism. I don't know. Yeah. I think we need it um, as much yeah. as we need scientists and academics, which are also important. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Cool. Well, okay. Let's, let's, uh, um, let's pivot. It's not even a segue. Let's pivot <laughs> to our letter. Segways Alexa. are overrated. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, that means it's time for me to read this letter. Yeah. Yeah. Let's hear the letter. Okay. Um, here it is. Dear the black goat. Is there a procedure you would recommend for researchers who have a publication fail to replicate? In such a case, it is quite possible that they did nothing to bias their results, but it may also be that their significant findings were the result of convenient research decisions or other questionable practices. How would you recommend that researchers go about reassessing the validity of their previous findings? Anonymous. Um, to, I mean, to me, this is this can be a specific question about how to respond when you know, when somebody fails to replicate your finding. Um, but it's also to me a more general question about like how, what's the right extent to defend your work? Um, at what point do you become unreasonably defensive and not open to sort of like recognizing the flaws in your own work? Um, but also, I mean, I remember 
being in maybe like my master's thesis defense um, and people asking me questions or maybe like criticizing um, my my master's thesis and me sort of just saying like yeah fair point like I understand like that's a good point and this is you know why I agree with what you're saying um, and then my my former advisor Mickey saying like you need to stand up for yourself more mm. and I um, I sort of do know what he means right like you do you make the decisions that you make for a reason um, and if you think that your work is good you should there is a, an extent to which you should defend it um, but then, of course, we need to worry about being overly defensive and not open to new evidence and things like that. So, I mean, I think this is a great question. Yeah. I think that, you know, there needs to be, even while you're defending your work, if you choose to do that, there needs to be a sense of openness to all possibilities. And if, if you're going to defend the work, Defending it by acknowledging the criticisms or competing explanations and then addressing them is very different than ignoring them or demagoguing them or whatever, right? So, um, and this is, again, this is not just about a replication. This is kind of like what you're saying, Alexa. You know, I think about when people are doing the Q&A of a job talk, and it's a very similar thing where... If you if somebody asks you a question and you talk past it or you misdirect or whatever, it's not going to go over well. Um, and if you if you think that is a limitation, and you say, "Yeah, I agree with you," but next up, I'm going to do X Y Z to address it. That's a really that can be a good response that acknowledges it. Or you can say, "You know, here's why I don't think that's actually a problem," in a way that acknowledges it. And I I feel like when when you know in the sort of the discourse that often follows uh, failed replication, you know things that happen on social media or in commentary back and forths in journals or whatever, there's a big and to me very noticeable difference in which ones kind of blow up into controversies and which ones don't. And the the difference is whether not whether the people whose work failed to replicate agree that, oh, my work was all crap, but whether they address the possibility. And sometimes they say, you know, I mean, I can think of some cases where people have been like, yeah, I kind of think maybe that specific study probably isn't replicable, like this convinced me. And I can think of other instances where people have said, okay, yeah, that, uh, um, you know, the replication had, you know, the following concerns or whatever, in a kind of compelling way. I mean, yeah. I think when, when those things are like, you were asked to consult on the replication and you didn't bring that up the first time, or this is post hoc, or you're just like invoking some magical hidden moderator that doesn't go over so well. Right. But like, it's totally possible to have a legit response that's not just, I, I you know, I agree my work was all shit. Yeah. Like, I, and I think, yeah. I think this is maybe changing now, but I think in the past, um, people have sort of anticipated that there would be these really terrible reputational costs to saying, actually, yeah, my, I, I now question my original work. Um, and I think, in fact, the reputational costs of being unreasonably defensive and, like you say, like not taking like criticism seriously are higher. Um, maybe I have a skewed perspective on on how people would respond to those two different um, receptions of a failure to replicate. But 
I really think that people come out looking way better if they really sincerely consider the possibility that, you know, their study was a false positive or they start to, you know, question the finding or even aspects of the theory um, than, than if they sort of staunchly defend it no matter what. Yeah, I'm going to interpret the question in the easier way to answer, which is like, let's say that the (laughs) replication failure is pretty clear and pretty compelling. So let's say like there's a triple R, the protocol was approved by people who, you know, you or or people who believe the effect. Um, It was many labs, it's pre-registered, a large sample, blah, blah. So let's assume that the evidence is compelling. What should you do if like probably your effect was a false positive? Mm-hmm. So I think that that puts aside Mickey's advice about like defending your effect. This, yeah. That's before you know if the criticism is valid, then maybe there's some argument for that. But let's say, and 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 thinking about this answer, I, I was thinking about what's the closest situation I've been in recently, and it's where um, people will sometimes say that we published a paper in a journal that I edit, and we shouldn't have published it. And that's happened at different journals where I've been editor. And sometimes I think they have a really valid point. And then my reaction is let's help promote that valid criticism. So like, we'll, you know, be a place where people can submit the commentary and we'll publish it if it's valid and, you know, peer review, blah, blah, blah. And then like help spread the word. I think an original author could do the same thing. And that would be the best reaction would be like, Hey, everybody, if you liked my paper and you were citing it and building on it, you should really look at this other paper that calls into question whether that, that finding was solid. And the other thing I think, you have a responsibility to do if you realize that something you published was wrong is to at least do a little bit of, of reflection on your process and ask yourself, is there something in my process that led to this failure that could happen again at a rate that that's not acceptable, that's not ideal? And again, that goes back to what I think about when I when this happens in editing, but I think it's relevant for research too, that you should ask yourself, okay, the outcome was wrong, that's not that big of a deal, but if it reflects a problem with the process, we need to address that. So you could look at your research practices and say, is there something I'm doing or not doing that that increase the chances of this happening and that I can address mm-hmm. and fix going forward? So like, I think there's no reputational cost to being like, yep, that was a mistake. Like, People make mistakes. I published something that turned out not to be true. That's going to happen even under the best circumstances. That doesn't mean there's a problem with the process at all. But I think the best response would be to also investigate yourself and look at your process and see if there is something you can fix or improve. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I think like a... a sincere self-reflection both about the process and about the theory mm-hmm. is is all that's warranted and 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 if somebody engages in that and their conclusion is no this this really was just a fluke yeah. that and and if people if the rest of the field sees that as like an outcome of serious sincere engagement with trying to sort of question and self-improve then that's that's I think that that goes over well. There, there's this idea that like, yeah, like the reputational thing, and and it's it's interesting to me because because people there's still this idea that pe- some people will raise that oh it's going to have all these reputational costs, and and when I when I look at the cases again where things blow up and where they don't, it just looks to me so clear. Like I can see such a difference in how people are engaging both with the theory and with their process, and not in self-flagellation kind of ways and not in just you have to concede immediately but you know people when people look back and they say hey you know we could always improve the way we do work in our lab and this gives us some cues as to how i mean it it is interesting i I feel like 
there there is just some people are inclined to be defensive and some people are inclined to question themselves like and it, it's kind of a this background thing that these are just situations where it comes out but you know i i take the attitude that like my work can always get better and my processes and the way we do things in my lab could always get better and the replicability crisis has shown people in very explicit ways some things that you know it's like this catalog of things that you could now go through and say oh where are we doing this um, because we now have very clear evidence and a list of things, and we'll discover more. But that that's a very, you know, I see some people, some other people who they view it as kind of their role to, like, put an assertion out there and then, like, stand there with their sword and shield and, like, knock down all comers. And that's how they go about doing science. Mm-hmm. And it's just such a difference in attitude and so failed replications are one way that that comes up but you you know that's i've seen that difference forever in how people handle criticisms and how people handle alternative explanations like whether it's their job to knock them down or whether it's their job to like seriously consider them do you think that's an explicit difference like there are some people who would say like that is how you should handle criticism is like it's your job to just like defend because yeah. it's your study There's or one is that just like a defensiveness the, the thing? Best, I mean, this is kind of the American um, legal system is yeah, the idea right, that exactly. right, both sides make the strongest argument they can and the truth will win yeah. out. But yeah, I don't think that works in science. And I think, yeah. yeah just, I think that's an overstatement of the legal system too, because there are, there are norms and actual laws that like, if you're mm-hmm. a prosecutor and you have exculpatory evidence, it's both unethical and illegal to withhold that right and so i think people sometimes take a really simplistic version like i get you know i totally get adversarial systems and that there are some aspects of scientific discourse that work that way but i feel like people kind of talk themselves into not being ethical or responsible about it by using this simplistic analogy to the legal system. Yeah. Um, and obviously, like, some people in the legal system do push those boundaries, too. But then we think that that's bad, you know? Yeah. Yep. Hmm. Yeah. Cool. Did we kill it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think we're good. All right. <laughs> Should I pick up my microphone and drop it? Anyway, yeah. Okay. Uh, there was just this like silence. I feel like sometimes, do you ever have this when you like, you get really worked up about something mm-hmm. and you just go on a tear and then you stop and everyone's just looking at you? Yeah. Like, yeah. I, I feel like I just did that. Like, <laughs> no, <laughs> you guys I mean, would just look at me like, I've... okay, Sanjay. <laughs> <laughs> I paused for a long time too because I was like, I wanted to ask a question, and then I was like, it's too long of a question. So then I was awkward (laughs) about it. And now I'm not going to ask it, and everybody can just sit in suspense about what the really interesting question that I was going to ask but decided not to ask was. this is like we're we're exhibiting what we're just we're like introspecting on our process right here live for our <laughs> listeners right. <laughs> anyway, well, cool. That that was an interesting letter, um, uh, and yeah, I think it brings up some important issues. So thank you to anonymous. By the way, if you're if you're uh, emailing us for something to be read on a podcast, feel free to you know go full like savage love and make up the like the 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 anonymous name that condenses into like a goofy acronym. Um, Because we'll totally read it. This person just signed their letter anonymous, which is like fine, but you know. Um, Anyway, but so thank you, anonymous, uh, for the letter. It was a good letter, and yeah, if you're listening and you want to email us, um, you can reach us by emailing letters at theblackgoatpodcast.com. 
And there's lots of ways to reach us through social media. We have a Twitter account at Black Goat Pod. We've got a Facebook page uh, that is facebook.com slash blackgoatpod. And if you want to find us to listen to us, you're, which is you're already doing, but you're, you have multiple options. We're on iTunes, and you can rate us on iTunes. That helps people find out about us. And uh, we have a website, www.theblackcoatpodcast.com, where you can read show descriptions and stream the podcast. So thank you, everybody who does any of those things, or all of them. Um, Cool. So for our main topic, we wanted to talk about, uh, you know, we did a previous episode a while back on ad hominems and on sort of the idea of using, it it was kind of about ad hominems, but it was also about sort of using the work to judge the person, right? So so when do you when is it legitimate and when is it not legitimate to draw conclusions about a researcher based on the research, whether we're talking about bad things like fraud or good things like awards or whatever. And this is kind of this was kind of inspired actually by the the letter last time about open, you know, should you trust the early work of open science advocates and and sort of off the podcast we were having this discussion, it turned into an idea for our main episode topic, which is sort of going the other way from that ad hominem idea and saying, when should you judge the work by the person? So when when should you judge a scientific finding, a paper, or something like that, based on who did it, who did the research? And is that legitimate? Is it not? Is it good in some circumstances, not others, and, and all that? So yeah, that's kind of what we wanted to talk about today. And I, you know, it it did come up in that letter, but I think it's a it's a much more general thing because we have these conversations about in the editorial process about blinding. You know, I'm on a search committee right now, and we've got actually three searches going on in my department, and so this comes up in other contexts as well. When you say like, oh, you know, so and so came out of so and so's lab, um, and is that good information or not good information? Like, should we think this person does good work because of who they trained with or whatever? So, like, judging based on the people is kind of what we wanted to talk about. I mean, let's let's start with just the, like, maybe at a broad level, do you guys, when you read a paper, and so not, not as an editor or reviewer, just, like, you know, you come across the paper, and do you look at the authors, and if you know them or you recognize the institutions or whatever... Does that, do you think that that colors your reading? Let me just preempt your answers by saying if you say no, you're just lying. There's just no way. <laughs> <laughs> so I wanted to say that first. So I don't let you say no and then call you out on bullshit. Uh, Samin has laid down her marker for this conversation. Who does oh, That's cool because I was going to say yes, duh. I'm a yeah. human being. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, uh, yeah, I guess so maybe, yes. Maybe let's implicitly, yeah, but do you explicitly, like, to yourself, do you go, like, oh, this this is a paper from so-and-so. I bet it's good. Like, do you – and do you feel comfortable doing that or do you call yourself out on it? Uh, I think that, like – so I'm sure there's a level in which this is operating implicitly. I'm, I think a lot of that reaches explicit awareness for me. Um, and, yeah, and I think, like – I also think that it's not really excusable. Like I don't, I don't have a good justification for doing it. Oh, I, I do should it, I do it explicitly, and I think it is excusable. I thought that you. That's why. A lot of yeah, stuff. that's why I don't do it as an editor <laughs> because. Well, we'll get to the but editing so, okay, part so, later. So you think it's, 
So you think it's excusable when we're talking about like you're just reading a paper. So you see a paper and it's got Alexa Tullet on the byline. Actually, I think I don't do it very much in the positive direction. I think I do it a lot more in the negative direction. I don't think there's a lot of authors where my base rate is like 90% of what they do. is. I think best case scenario, like my favorite researchers who I trust the most, I would be like, Oh, there's a better than fifty percent chance this might be real, but it's not my my prior is never like ninety percent. But then there are some people where my base my prior is very very low, but it ranges from very very low to like slightly above a coin toss. <laughs> yeah. So and do you feel okay? So you're you you come across a paper, you're doing a you know you're doing a, a Google Scholar search because you're working on a review or something, and you come across a paper. And you see, like, oh, so and so and so, it came out of so and so's lab. All of their work is hot, stinking garbage, or you know, <laughs> that's mm-hmm. just we're <laughs> we're gonna make people. You're mad gonna get me in for, so much trouble. You know, <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, no, but, okay. You you see somebody, and and you're like. I have concerns about this work. So, so that, that, I mean, you're already describing. So, I was imagining a situation where there's no stakes. I'm not reading it for my own work purposes or to decide whether to plan my next study. I'm just coming across it in my free time. You're just browsing through the journal. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. And so, so yeah. So, and you feel comfortable doing that, that you're, you kind of walk in with a bigger chip on your shoulder. You're like, you're going to have to prove to me that this stuff's legit um, as you're reading the paper. I definitely don't lose sleep over the fact that I do that. You're now making me doubt a little more. Whether excusable? What do you mean exactly? That it's too much to expect people not to do that. I guess. Right when they have the information available. Right. I think like if I if I, I think it's entirely possible that I have legitimate reason to think that a certain author. Um tends to do stuff that I haven't bought and I found low quality in the past. And therefore when I come across their paper, I have this expectation that I'm going to be disappointed when I read the paper. Um, I think it's just so human. I just don't understand how you could not come into it that way. And then I think we do have some responsibility to try to keep our minds open and try to look at the actual evidence in that paper and so on. Like I don't, I'm not endorsing like not even reading the paper, just walking away or whatever. Right. Um, especially when there are when there's anything at stake but just to take the situation where you're just reading for pleasure there's nothing at stake even then i think like at least you know try to disconfirm your your prejudgment like try to look at the at the content of the paper and see yeah i mean so So i'll go i'll go a step further than that i i think it's not only excusable but i'm gonna say it's legit so yeah okay i there are you know, and, and I mean, it depends. It depends how extreme, right? Like, I don't think there's there's hardly any authors or labs other than like people that are known frauds. That if I was looking at their old work, I'd set it aside or whatever. But you know, short of that, like, there's hardly anybody that I would go. There's absolutely no chance this is worth anything. Like, sort of, I'm, I'm hinging this on like you've read the title and it's a subject matter that you're interested, right? Because that's a totally different issue. But you know, but there are definitely people that I'm like, look, this person. Um, you know, they they use this method that I don't buy routinely in their lab. And I'm going to flip through really quickly to the method section. If I see this is another one of those papers, I'm going to stop reading because I'm, I'm, I know, you know, at that point, I'm not going to waste my time, like, carefully considering the article. Um, and, you know, or or this is, you know, I, this might be a little more controversial, but, you know, this is somebody who... 
I think a lot of their work, you know, is sort of, they tend to oversell really thin statistical evidence or what, you know, really crappy methods or whatever. And so I'm just going to zero in on the points in the manuscript where that would be most obvious. And I'm, I'm going to set it aside. And I think that's entirely legitimate because people, labs have, researchers in labs have their standard way of doing things. And like, it's always worth seeing like, oh, maybe they've changed. Maybe their collaborators talk them into doing things differently this right. time. But that's that's signal. That is valid information. Yeah. That, okay. Like, so so and so uses multi method designs and large samples and a lot of rigor, and so and so will divvy up the smallest thing they can into least publishable units. That you know, I and and I go in and I'm like, prove me right or prove me wrong. Yeah. Okay. So. I mean, when I said at the beginning that I thought it was not excusable, I meant in a context where it's there are consequences. So when you're reviewing a paper or whatever, and basically what I mean by that is that, like, so it's not that I think that people are capable of overcoming that bias if they try really hard. I think that, you know, I feel like I should... I should make an effort to blind things. And I guess I probably could do that as a reviewer, even at a journal that doesn't blind things, if I, like, I don't know, figured out how to hide the first page of the or, manuscript or whatever, right? Yeah. But but when you say, Sanjay, so, like, I agree with you, Sanjay, that the identity of the author is signal. Absolutely. Of course, the identity of the author tells you something about the quality of the work. I think the question is whether evaluating the paper with the information of the author's identity results in you being better able to evaluate it than if you remove that. Because a lot of the things that you're talking about, like the the author is a signal that like, let's say they're going to use this particular method or they're going to like do these kinds of QRPs or whatever. You can identify those when you look at the paper. Yeah. You don't need so, that. Okay. So yeah, there's there. Well, no, there's, there's, yeah, the, I think this is a good distinction. There's two versions of it, right? There's, there's sort of like, this is a signal at the outset of what I'm likely to find in the paper. That's one version of it. And then the other is, this is a signal of what's what likely happened that may not be crystal clear. Yeah, sure, yeah. And right. you know, and this is okay, so so I'm gonna I'm gonna set you up, Samin. Um, mm-hmm. you wrote a paper <laughs> about Akerlof's uh, lemons yeah. argument, right? And there is, you know, this idea that um, you know, in in the original version, like when you're buying a car and you know, like you don't know if a car is a lemon or not as well as the seller does um, because the seller knows the full history and that kind of thing. So there, there's, and, and you, you made an analogy to scientific papers that the, the author, the people that did the work have more information about the paper because they know every single thing exactly as it happened. And the reader, whether, and, and we can move into an editing context and that kind of thing. The, the reader doesn't have all that information. Um, and so uh, let me throw this argument out there and, and you can wind up and prepare to knock it, knock it down or talk about it. Like, so the hidden information, the stuff that's not in there, I would argue that the author is sometimes you, you have background information about the author that's valid information. They have a long track record. You know their, their previous work. Is it solid? Is it not solid? You know, there are some people who I myself have tried to replicate their work in my lab, and I know if it does or doesn't hold up. And so if I read the exact same paper by two different authors, 
I'm going to have that background information about did this come out of a lab and that hidden information in the Akerlof lemon sense, um, that's going to be correlated with the hidden information. The author's identity is going to be correlated with the hidden information. Yeah, so I would think the distinction between a reader context versus an editor or reviewer context is extremely important. So I've yeah. never argued for blinding readers to the author's identity. And I think there actually are some interesting arguments there, but I haven't. I haven't gone that far. And yeah, so I think it's I think that your argument is valid for a reader. A reader should be allowed to know one piece of relevant information is who the authors are. Um, but I think that in an editing and reviewing context, in a gatekeeping context, I think it's extremely clear to me that that they should not have that information. The argument you're making is an argument I've heard a lot from Bayesians where they say, you know, you should want all the evidence, all the information relevant and author contains some valid information. So why wouldn't you use all the information that's relevant? So I have a couple of counter arguments to that and I've been actually working them out in my head for the last year or so. And I had a conversation that somebody came up to me on the earlier this week and actually asked me what I thought about this argument. So I had another chance to try out my counter argument and I don't have it down yet. And maybe you guys can help me or the listener can help me or help me find what's wrong with my counter argument but I can't quite articulate it yet. So there's two parts to the counter argument. One I think is relatively simple, that things that contain accurate information can also contain biasing information. And right. in this case, I think maybe the biasing effect is stronger than the accuracy effect. So that's one counter argument, but that's an mm -hmm. empirical question. I might be wrong about that. Let's, so then there's the other, I think, harder to refute um, counter argument. And I, I don't quite have my finger on it. And it's related to the idea that when we're choosing whether or not to publish a paper, the world depends on that being an independent event for each paper. The way that we read people's CVs, the way that we evaluate people, when we say, oh, wow, you got a paper in this journal, that's impressive. We assume that that was independent of your past work, that that decision was made on the basis of just that paper. And if that's no longer true, you read people's CVs very differently. If basically you could get a paper in just because of who you are, and let's say go the full extreme opposite, that if you're so-and-so, then JPSP will accept all your papers. Then we would read that person's CV and be like, okay, well, all their papers are in JPSP, but that doesn't provide any valid information about those individual papers, right? So when we say that we should count a publication as a sign of you know, having a, accomplished something, we're assuming that that decision was made just on the basis of what's in the paper. So Kristen Lauren came up with this analogy and she very graciously let me use it in a paper I wrote um, against status bias. And the, the analogy that I think works really well is the idea that if we say, well, sure, their past performance is relevant to evaluating their next paper, that's accurate, but the problem then if we use it to determine the quality of their next paper is that it's, it would be the same as if we said, well, okay, we're gonna do this 100 meter sprint for the Olympics, but we're gonna give Usain Bolt a head start because we know that he's faster than the other people. So from a yeah. Bayesian perspective, why shouldn't we weigh that in determining the winner of this race? And I think the evaluation of a paper in the, in the peer review context is the same as a race. It doesn't matter who's won in the past. It doesn't matter how good or bad you were in the past. We depend, the system depends on that being an independent event that's not influenced by your past performance. And then you can accumulate the performance across a bunch of independent events to say who's better overall or who's worse in an ideal system with not, that works. <laughs> Does that make any sense? I don't know it about does. The, yeah. So, yeah. the bolt analogy, right? Because you're talking I, I think about a a, yeah. a better you're analogy talking about the interpretation be, you... of the result, right? So the, the better 
analogy would be that like if if it's like a photo finish you assume that it was bolt and not the other person yeah. Hmm. yeah like if you blinked when they were crossing the line and someone said who won and you said oh, i bet it was bolt but I, but no i yeah so i i totally i'm with you alexa hmm. on that um i do so i wasn't uh yeah i i think the i think this is really helpful because people sometimes say people sometimes try to argue that the author information is not valid. And I think that's not what you're saying, Samin. Right. And I think that's actually a really important thing in these discussions because when people say that and people come up and there's, I mean, I think I think we give Bayesians too much credit for this. <laughs> like past performance predicts, or the best predictor of future behavior is past behavior is like, has been around forever. But anyway, um, yeah, I think, I think it, it I think the the response has to acknowledge the reality that that yeah and you know bias and validity unless you're at the ex- the maximum of one or the other bias and validity are not mutually exclusive and you can do things that will increase both at the same time and including versus not including author information in a reviewer's or editor's evaluation is probably one of those things that you potentially could do both of those at the same time that it could include it's it's adding more signal and it's adding more systematic bias um and 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 i think you know you you described it samin as a empirical question i think there's an empirical question which is you know how much of both of those things is it doing Mm -hmm. but but i think ultimately the resolution is there's not an empirical resolution there it's a values question it's a you know the i mean i i really liked i I actually came across this in a different context but psyop the society for industrial organizational psychology has a white paper on um, personnel selection and they talk about fairness bias and validity and they say those are three different things and that, you know, uh, and this is where this idea that something can be more ba- biased and more valid comes in. Those are both empirical questions, but fairness is a values question. And, and an empirical judgment of bias can factor into a fairness judgment. But we, well, might, we might say, look, if there was a massive validity signal and a small bias signal, that it would still be our goal to have a fair system. And we think a fair system is one that doesn't tolerate certain biases um and that so that that you know it's like when we talked to anna alexandrova and she was saying a lot of times there are these hidden values questions and i think there's a hidden values question in here i don't think there's a pure empirical answer to this yeah so i mean maybe this is sort of what you're saying sanjay but i'm wondering like are there certain kinds of biasing information that we're just not willing to tolerate so i think what we're talking about is kind of like your your identity as an individual is the source of biasing information or your like past work or something like that. Right. Um, but what if, and I think we would object to this idea more, like what if you're using, I don't know, the school that somebody works at or something like that, that's the biasing information. Um, at that point, are we like, does that weigh more heavily as biasing information that they would, that we would sacrifice the validity information for and like i mean school is one thing but then we started to get into like i don't know other stereotype groups yeah. yes exactly yeah no i think that that's i mean there was a um so in the in the 70s robin dawes did a a couple of papers on graduate admissions 
where he was looking at how different admissions criteria predicted various outcomes, faculty ratings of how people are doing a few years into the program, things like that. And one of the things that he found in that paper is that the prestige of the school that somebody went to as an undergraduate was an underutilized predictor. That if you looked at what predicts admission committee decisions and then what predicts these criteria, the outcomes that, that you know, that you want graduate students to be doing well. You know, he made the argument that if if admissions committees were using more, were, were, were more strongly weighting what school somebody went to, the sort of U.S. News World Report ranking or whatever was kind of how that was operationalized, that you would get better selection, better by a sort of correlation with outcome with criterion. Now, you, you could quibble with the, maybe you think those are poor criteria or whatever, but you could certainly imagine with criteria that, for anybody listening, you could very easily imagine that with whatever criteria you personally consider valid, that you could get the same result. Um, and mm-hmm. and I think so. That, that's a really good question. Is like, should we? Sh- you know, there's a if you only care about validity, then you would say we should be including that information yeah. in the decision. Um, and and. Yeah, so I think, and I think this mm-hmm. this is where it becomes a value judgment about, you know, you might say, look, there are, out of fairness to people, um, yeah, we would if we only like picked people who went to you know Ivies and and other sort of prestigious schools for undergraduate, we we might you know be doing better on some outcome, but that in fairness we want to give everyone a fair shake. And, and this is also where I think, you know, what is that quote unquote biasing information becomes important because to me, things that intersect with other forms of social inequality are the most important to guard against. Right, when yeah. we're talking about race and ethnicity, you know, you could imagine making an argument that you could say, look, and this would be such a cynical argument, but you could say, look, there is systematic social inequality in our country. People from certain ethnic and racial groups legitimately have had access less access to quality education yeah therefore that's a valid signal i mean how cynical would this be but you could say look we you know we've got a shitty society that deprives people from certain groups of a good education so we should be trying to construct a selection procedure that takes that into account because that's signal that that's a someone's race is a signal that on average people from that group uh, how horrible would that argument be but we could do it so to to go in a slightly different direction i think that the robin dawes thing is a little bit I, I think your point is valid, but I, I worry that it's going to be interpreted as you saying that you think that the status of the institution is a valid signal. It, so if it's valid in grad admissions, that it might be valid in editorial decisions, too. And I actually think this is an empirical question. I'm purely, it's just purely conjecture. I think it's not. I think it's much, yeah, much right. less valid in the context of what institution a researcher is from rather than what undergrad institution a grad applicant came from. But both, I think, have... Li- limited validity, but I believe Robin Dawes that it's underutilized in grad admissions. I think it's overutilized in editorial decisions. I think people are way too quick to think that's because somebody came from a prestigious institution that their research is valid. And sorry, I'm going to rant for a little bit. There's a few things you guys said that triggered some thoughts for me. So one is that it's, yeah, like there might be validity in author information. And I'm not going to deny that there is. I think there is some. But I think one empirical reason to think that it's actually quite limited, that even if we just cared about validity, the author info isn't that useful, is that I suspect and have some anecdotal evidence 
that there's really, really low consensus. If we were to rank everybody in our subfield in terms of like who's, the, who's the best researcher and who's the worst researcher, I think there would be terrible consensus about who's the best and who's the worst, especially post-replicability crisis. I think if you took people from opposite extremes mm-hmm. of opinions on replicability crisis, their rankings of who does the best research to who does the worst research would be negatively correlated. Yeah, I agree. So how valid can that heuristic be if there's no consensus? Like, so... So I think validity depends on at least some level of consensus. Otherwise, what's how could it be valid yeah. if it's if there's complete disagreement about the signal? I, I have other things I want to say, but I, I'll let you jump in, and then I'm going to steal the floor. Oh, back. just just yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I I mean it's an empirical question. I think uh, um, uh, I think there would be consensus if we included a large enough range of people. I think when we think about this. When we think about like a small circle of like who you know who most often publishes or whatever, I think if you looked at like the entire list of people who submitted to SPPS or JPSP last year, like every single author for you know mm. hundreds and hundreds, I do think that there would be consensus. That's an empirical question. But anyway, yeah, go on. my guess is that it would be yeah. very close to zero. But yeah, so we disagree there. Then another uh, response I have is. To the extent that there's valid information contained by who the author is and what institution they're from, and I'm not saying validity is zero. I use it you know, as a reader, so it would be hypocritical of me to say that validity is zero. I am skeptical that other people share my opinion about it. Um, to the extent that there's valid information there, so going back to the quality uncertainty argument, the lemons, and that readers should have all the information they need, part of the reason that we need to use author info, that I as a reader use author info, is that hid, right? It reveals some of that hidden information. It's correlated with some of that hidden information. One answer to that is we we need less hidden information, and then author info would be way less useful and maybe even completely unnecessary. So if papers were reported totally transparently, if we had norms and culture of transparency, and it's not okay to hide things, it's not okay to not report things, etc. Let's say we could magically snap our fingers and live in that world. I would use author info a lot less. I think not zero. But I think that the value of that information would be a lot less. Yeah. Yeah, I, think I, that's a good I point. totally agree with you on that. I mean, well, I don't. I don't think we could ever get it to zero. Right. I don't think there's some level of transparency we could reach that would have all the information. But I, I totally agree that we could push that a lot further. I, and I think it would also, it would, it would again, it would change from context that if you're a reviewer or editor who's in the role of like being a close cr- cl- critical reader, the information would be available. I, st- I still think like, you know, as a casual reader, you don't have time to dig into all the details. But but no, yeah, that I, I think in is those useful, high, yeah, for a casual reader. In the yeah yeah, but in those high stakes con- contexts, uh, yeah. I mean, I don't I don't disagree with most of what you're saying, Samin. I think the I think it's important to sort of push on some of these no, arguments. I know, yeah. Um, and- I appreciate yeah, like it. the the validity and consensus. There's a there. It, it is an empirical question. And, At least the point you know, is how, that how much consensus is li- or validity is limited by consensus, right? So if consensus is low, that limits the potential validity of the signal. Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, I guess I, I I think that's mostly true. I think you could say, you know, there's in a different sense, like if you have what you care about and I have what I care about and those are different, mm-hmm. then we could both be making quote sure. unquote valid arguments yeah. to our different our different value systems I, about what matters. What I find interesting yeah. is a lot of people who argue for wanting to be allowed to use author info in their own reviews or editorial decisions would balk at the idea of someone with the opposite values as them using that information, right? They would be so right. upset <laughs> if they got an editor who had the complete opposite views about research practices and who used yeah. their right. own subjective judgment of 
who's a good author, what's a good lab, what's a good university. So mm-hmm. totally, yeah. <laughs> that's you have the wrong yeah, values. That's so true. Yeah. <laughs> you have like accurate measurement to your fucked up wrong values. <laughs> you know, uh, so you shouldn't be part of the system. Yeah, no. Um, so what about? Uh, um, I mean, we've talked a lot about editing and reviewing. What about? Uh, I mean, this is this is not just the the work. Can I, sorry, can um, I say one more thing about of, editing before yeah, we go move on? Yeah, yeah. So I go was at, the editor-in-chief of Nature came to UC Davis this week and gave a talk. And in his talk, he said, we don't blind at Nature. It's optional. Like, authors can choose to opt into double blind. So, of course, high-status authors never do. But he said, but don't worry. Our editors don't use the author's identity. And I was like, that was the most offensive thing I've ever heard an editor say. Like, it's one thing to argue against blinding because you want to use the author's identity. Then we can engage in a lively debate. But if you tell me that it's as good as blind because I just ignore that information, like, that's what really pisses me off. Like, learn, like, a little bit of psychology. Does this nature human behavior? No, nature. Oh, okay. I, I assume this person was not a psychologist. No. Yeah. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I think if you if you're a psychologist and you say that, like you should you know they're, they're, you should have your your PhD put up for you know, review yeah. or whatever. Yeah. I did um, call him on it. So but... what 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 do you guys? I was having a conversation with someone about this. What do you think about in hiring and specifically in the? So this is a little bit getting away from judging the work by the person. This is sort of like judging the person by another person or judging yeah. a person's work by another person when you're hiring. And you say, oh, so-and-so came out of such-and-such lab, and they do really good work, and they, you know, they train people really well, but they also, they use these cutting-edge procedures, and, because people say stuff like that all the time. What do you guys think of those kinds of, because I I feel, I feel really torn on that, because on the one hand, I'm like, well, it's training, like, and we want, we want people who are well-trained, and, and that's, that's definitely a hidden information problem because in hiring yeah. you're trying to guess what people are going to do in the future, which is inherently hidden. Right. Um, there's no transparency issue. You're trying to guess what someone's going to do in the next five, ten years of their career. Um, uh, yeah. But I on think... the other hand, yeah, I worry about all these inequalities that get snowballed and built up into how did somebody come to be in this prestigious lab over a lifespan. Yeah. I mean, I think... Thinking back to what you said earlier, Sanjay, about like the th- the aspects of a manuscript that are sort of ambiguous, and then that's where the author information can sort of fill in the blanks for you. I mean, this I think that becomes a way bigger deal when you're evaluating an individual and deciding whether to hire them. Right? There's yeah, there's so much you don't know. Um, you can you can only sort of get a limited picture, um, and I think you could probably there's a lot of signal probably in how they were trained, but. Yeah, of course, I see the the bias that you're worried about as well. But yeah, I don't know. I I would definitely consider that information. But just because somebody spent five years in a lab doesn't mean they absorbed that lab's practices or values. Yeah, but like no, it no, sort of does a little. Not in like, my experience. I mean, <laughs> but it's. I mean, let's let's throw a ceteris paribus on all this, right? Like two candidates with their yeah, their CVs exactly. are sort of roughly comparable. I just think the variation um, within lab. Yeah. I don't know. I don't think that advisors have that much influence on, on on values in particular, I would say. I don't think that I could take a randomly selected good graduate student but not selected on values and after five years in my lab they would necessarily share my values. Or I mean necessarily is too strong a word, but I, I just think 
Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. Well, it's it's going to be a combination of selection and training, yeah, right. right? right so right, it's right. it's like a really prestigious lab is only going to be skimming off the the you know yeah. highly qualified qualified people, yeah. and then they're going to be yeah. teaching them specific skills and that kind of thing. Yeah, right? I guess I think um, of it as a really noisy heuristic. But then I once I like see the letter and if I can kind of read between the lines in the letter from so let's say it's a PI who I have a very positive opinion of, um, and then the letter seems exceptionally strong. That that combination, I think, would would. Yeah, I mean, I feel like I hear people talk this way relatively more. They talk this way in every area, but relatively more in more technical areas. If someone's like, uh, you know, doing Mm -hmm. sort of very technically intensive Mm -hmm. neuroscience work or that kind of thing, I feel like this kind of talk is much more common in those areas. And I, I wonder if it's more legitimate because there are just more kind of like there's a there's a lot of more like deep technical knowledge you have to have to be able to do something well and and that kind of thing it would be interesting to know what proportion of the variance is within lab versus between lab yeah yeah and i i agree like i agree sanjay that it's it depends on the kind of skill right like i think one of the things samin is picturing is you know like yeah students who are in a lab where they don't share the values of their advisor, they're not necessarily going to like convert to the values of their advisor, right? Um, but yeah, when it comes to let's say like, I mean, you know, I I did a lot of EG work in grad school, and yeah, there's a difference in the way that different labs train people and the emphasis that they put on different things. And I think there you really you really do adopt what you're advisor says you know there are some exceptions you could like learn from other people and work with other people and read other people's papers but yeah like knowing who somebody's advisor is in terms of those technical skills will tell you a lot about the individual i think that's an important distinction yeah and just to clarify what i meant about the values in my experience i don't mean my personal experience in my own lab but just i know a lot of grad students who have very different values than their advisor in both directions so but Yeah. yeah, yeah i would i would use that heuristic more for more things that are less laden with like I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Less value. I I feel like in some sense, this is, this is the same structure. I mean, you know, we might disagree about like in the editing context, whether there's much valid signal in who the author is, but, but this is a case where, you know, this, it's a similar structure where, you know, but maybe we have more agreement that there's signal in there that like what labs somebody came out of, at least for some things like technical skills and that kind of thing is really going to be signal. But it's also probably going to have a lot of bias in it. That yeah. who s- was able to get into that lab, um, you know, based on on sort of demographic background and other kinds of things, are going to matter. And and that's that's what I worry about. Yeah. Is that I feel like there's there's a pretty good case to be made for the signal, but I have a lot of worries about the bias. Yeah, I worried a lot about all the grad students who are better than their advisors, and then if they, yeah. if like the the <laughs> highest possible rating they could get as a job candidate is whatever their advisor's reputation is, then I worry about Right. That. Right. Yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I, I think the... I mean, it, you know, this is this is where, like, sometimes when you're in these decision-making roles, it just sort of feels like, you know, yeah, it's like you're, you're trying to cope within an, a system with lots of inequalities. And so any solution you come to is going to be imperfect because you're you're dealing with kind of something that's already got a lot of accumulated inequality and you're not going to be able to reverse that. 
And so it just feels sometimes like there there's not an an answer at that stage that's going to fix everything. And so then, you know, the answer is to like go back and say like how what can we do about who gets into those labs and who gets the qualifications and training and everything that they need and, you know, unpaid and underpaid internships and all that kind of stuff that leads into that. Um, but when you're on a hiring committee, you can't fix all that. You have to mm -hmm. make a decision with what you've got in front of you. Yeah. Um, I just never, I, I always feel uneasy no matter what I'm doing. Yeah, there's a lot of guesswork, especially with hiring, hiring mm -hmm. somebody like who doesn't, who hasn't been in the field very long, hiring at the junior levels. Yeah. Yeah. Well, good luck with that. Well, this has been a heavy episode. <laughs> yeah, this is this is <laughs> this has been a heavy one. Uh, <laughs> uh, all right. Well, I think we're we're. It feels like we're just about just about out of time. Yep. So uh, yeah. All right. Well, thanks everybody for listening, and uh, um, this has been the Black Goat, and we'll see you next time. Mm -hmm.